the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, LiDAR reindeer noses detect hidden city where it's always winter and never Christmas. But not this year. They'll know where to go. Confronting space leech infestation in hydraulic body armor. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon. Eric and Chuck discuss their latest entry in the Ring of Fire alternate history series. That book is called 1636 The Vatican Sanction. It's a fun discussion about ecumenical disputes time travelers would cause and what firearms are best for close quarters protection of popes. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Have a holly jolly Christmas, Hanukkah, heathen thingy at solstice, or whatever gets you to give presents, because we've got presents for you to give. The December mass market paperbacks are out at booksellers, and both of them have the word shadow in the title. So to avoid getting confused, just buy them both for your gifties. First is Shadow of Victory by David Weber. Hey, we got a box of these in the office last week, and it liked to broke the back of our intrepid mail clerk, Grace. She's strong in spirit and just plain strong, so she managed fine. But a copy of Shadow of Victory will certainly keep you reading for a long time and prop open your door to let in the warm from the fire while you're sleeping to boot. The Mason Alignment has a plan, and a one it's been working on for centuries, a plan to remake the galaxy and genetically improve the human race its way. But they've made the mistake of messing with the Royal Manticoran Navy and Honor Harrington, they're about to find out that even the best laid plans can have unintended consequences, and one of those consequences in this case just may be a new dawn of freedom for the oppressed star nations everywhere. Also out now is Alliance of Shadows by Larry Correa and Mike Coopery. This is a heck of a military adventure novel in its own right, and it's also the latest entry in the Dead Six series by Larry and Mike. They've been writing that for a while now. It seems Europe has spiraled into chaos. A conspiracy years in the making, combined with the general unrest, leads to upheaval and revolution. In the midst of the murderous disorder, mercenary Michael Valentine is in Europe with a small team of his exodus personnel trying to track down the evil and highly dangerous Katarina Maltoban. Meanwhile, Valentine's friend Hector Lorenzo finds himself in a dungeon owned by Asian warlord Salah Jihan. He must make a deal that may lead him to cross paths with Valentine again. If two of the most effective killers in existence hunt, even the pandemonium in Europe may just be the first act in an orgy of destruction. Shadow of Victory by David Weber and Alliance of Shadows by Larry Correa and Mike Coopery are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is the first entry in a two-part interview with... Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon discussing their book, 1636, The Vatican Sanction. Part 2 will be available next time on the podcast.
Uh, want to welcome Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, guys. Nice to have you back again. Hello. And hello. Eric Flint is a modern master of alternative history fiction with over three million books in print. He's the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with first novel, 1632. And with David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series. And with David Weber, collaborated on 1633, 1634, the Baltic War, and in the Honorverse entries, Cauldron of Ghosts, and all of those um, Crown of Slaves books. Um, Flint's latest Ring of Fire novel is 1636, The Ottoman Onslaught, his latest solo novel. Um, Eric was for many years a labor union activist, and he lives in... Uh, East Chicago, I think that's Indiana, um, and uh, I know it is. Uh, Charles Charles Gannon, Chuck Gannon, is the author of Compton Crook Award-winning Nebula-nominated novels Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, and Raising Cain in the Cain Riordan series. He's co-author with Eric Flint of 1636 The Papal Stakes and 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies um, in the Ring of Fire series. With Steve White, uh, Chuck is the co-author of the Starfire series entries, Extremist and Imperative. He's also the author of multiple short stories and, and all kind of other stuff. He's a member of Sigma, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium. And Chuck lives near Annapolis, Maryland with his wife and children. So uh, first of all, for those of you... For those of our listeners who really don't know what the Ring of Fire series is, um, I know that most everyone will. Can we get a, a little pricey on on what that is, perhaps, Eric? Uh, yeah, the basic premise is simple enough. There's a cosmic catastrophe, never really explained, that um, <clears throat> transplants a modern... By modern, we're talking the year 2000, which is when the story begins. Um, but a small coal mining town in northern West Virginia gets transplanted both in time and space into the middle of Germany in the year 1631. Uh, the first novel ends in the year 1632, which is what gave it the title. And the series basically follows the adventures of a town of about originally 3,500 Americans as they find themselves in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, which was probably the most destructive war in European history. It was actually much, nowhere near as well known to Americans, but it was actually a much more destructive war than either of the World Wars of the 20th century. Um, and in addition to their loss of life, it was estimated about 25% of the population of Central Europe died in the course of the war. It also completely changed the nature of politics, in, especially in Germany, um, to some extent, all the countries surrounding it. Um, and Germany went from being the most uh, progressive and intellectually developed and democratic society in Europe. Uh, it was not unified at that point. It was divided into a number of different principalities. It was a very vibrant society. It went from being that to being uh, an, an area ruled by autocratic princes by the end of the war. Um, so this, 
1632 series, the Ring of Fire series, as it's usually known, basically just traces the adventures of not just Americans, but Europeans who get swept into the process. And we are now up, I believe the novel Chuck and I just finished, which it just came out, is the 20th novel in the series. They say 24th on Amazon, but I think they're wrong. Well, it depends. I should, I should qualify that. It's 24, 20 novels that I have either authored or co-authored. There's an additional ah. four, four novels written by other people, or four books. Some of them are novels. Uh, like Virginia DeMars, The Tangled Web is a, is a collection of stories. Same with Ivor Trooper's Seas of Fortune. Um, and then there's an additional... Uh, what are we up to now? Um, Eleven anthologies of short fiction. Plus an electronic magazine that's been chugging along for over ten years now. Yeah, that's the Grantville Gazette. And there's, of yeah. course, also the uh, Ring of Fire uh, short story collections <laughs> that are in the yep. in the mix. It's uh, it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing uh, sort of world that. Um, that you and, and so many others have built here. Um, a lot of it can be, uh, can be experienced at 1632.org as well. If, uh, so if you're new to it, you can go and, and look at that. Um, so the Vatican Sanction is pretty, I think it's pretty much a sequel to 1635, The Papal Stakes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, can uh, you bring us up to speed on what happened there and what's going on as we start uh, the Vatican sanction. What's the what's the situation on the ground, as they say? Chuck, I'm going to pass that one on to you. <laughs> well, I figured I was going to. We'll, we could do this in two parts because I came into the series actually at Papal Stakes. So um, the first two books in what's been uh, now kind of referred to as the Italian Arc, which were the Galileo Affair and Canon Law, were Eric and Andrew Dennis. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna let the master himself do the uh, do the the uh, the setup through those two because people, in in some ways I kind of see the first two as the articulation and the the tracking of the problem and then these last two books the ones that I've been involved in as the equally equally drawn out resolution of that problem so so Eric if you wouldn't mind taking the lead on this and then hand off to me when we get the papal stakes side. Okay, the premise of Galileo Fair is that um, in the first novel, whole series, 1632, uh, and then it was further developed in a short story by Andrew Dennis in the first Ring of Fire anthology called Between the Armies, um, there is a Catholic priest in the town of Granville, his name's Larry Mazzari, and by the end of 1632, and it's explicitly laid out in Andrew's story, he decides he has no choice but essentially to... He's not trying to be confrontational about it, but he is challenging the Catholic Church of the 17th century. And he sends uh, Mazzarini, who is a, at that point a visitor in Grandfell, and this is the same Mazzarini who, in real history, later in life, became the French chief minister, Mazarin, succeeded recently. Uh, mm. But we're catching him as a young man. 
And um, he was a diplomat, uh, very active in church circles. And Larry Mazzari hands him copies of the various documents produced by the Catholic Church much later in history, especially around Vatican II. And he sends... um, my tells Mazzarini to take these to the Pope in Rome and have him look at it. Um, the Pope, who at this point is Urban VIII, Urban was a very cosmopolitan, very sophisticated uh, man. He um, was a, actually a personal friend of Galileo's. But Galileo is being brought up on trial at this point. And... Um, I'm not going to go into that. The, the, the trial of Galileo is a lot more complicated than it's come down in history. Um, it's usually presented as just kind of the church as being reactionary, uh, which they were, but it was a lot more complicated than that. Um, Galileo had made a lot of enemies, basically because he was an arrogant schmuck, frankly. <laughs> um, and so a lot of people were out uh, to get him. And... Um, and the trial for heresy wound up being the way they silenced them. Anyway, in Galileo Affair, the first novel in what we call the Italian art, a delegation of uh, people is sent from Granville, uh, led by Larry Mazzari, uh, and it includes Sharon Nichols, who's the uh, daughter of, uh, of Dr. James Nichols, and she goes along as do um, the Stone Boys, the three boys who are the sons of Tom Stone. And they have various adventures. The pivot of it is the trial of Galileo, where um, Mazzari winds up defending Galileo successfully. But they also get caught up in a plot to assassinate the Pope, being carried out by French Huguenot fanatics. And it's all kinds of adventures, and it resolves with... Galileo not being convicted and Larry Mazzari being um, appointed the cardinal. Um, so what basically happens is the Pope goes through a kind of experience that we associate with Thomas Al Beckett, uh, who was very similar kind of guy, very sophisticated, very confound, not particularly religious. Uh, Pope Urban was not famous for being particularly devout. He was famous for <laughs> nepotism. Um, but he goes through a kind of transformation. And that's the end of Galileo Fair. What then happens in the next book, Canon Law, is there's a reaction within the church led by a Spanish cardinal named Borgia, who's an arch reactionary, and they wind up, he winds up leading what amounts to a coup d'etat within the Catholic Church, and a number of cardinals are, are murdered, and they almost kill Urban, but but um, fail to because of the intervention of partly the Americans, but more actually people who are now allied with the Americans. The key figure is someone named Rui Sanchez, who's a Catalan um, uh, swordsman and also the close advisor and assistant to um, uh, a... I can't remember if he was a cardinal at that point. I think he was, but he's one of the archbishops. He was. He was, right, yeah. Bedmar, who was actually a former... He's Spanish. He's a former soldier, but closely associated with the Netherlands. And Bedmar's going through a kind of conversion also. That's what happens in um, 
both in Galileo Fair and later in Canada Law. And now, is, um, is Rui uh, historical, or is he made up? Who, Bedmar? Uh, well, Bedmar and Rui uh, Sanchez. Rui Sanchez is fictional. Um, uh, he's fictional. Most of the... Um, um, someone of his station in life would not typically have been come down in the historical record. He wasn't, yeah. uh, although he, he sort of has faked a kind of, not as a noble title, but as an adult, but that's, it's fake. Mm. Um, I, I have a kind of side question. Um, have Has anybody that is historical, I just can't, uh, um, married an uptimer in the series? An historical figure? Yeah, or, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know what you're asking. I'm trying to. Uh, Cromwell has, hasn't he? Are they married yet? Cromwell, yeah. By the end, yes. Oliver Cromwell is married an American woman named Gail Mason, uh, and Cromwell is certainly a historical figure. Um, and so did Eddie Cantrell, who married Eddie Cantrell. Uh, yes, and Eddie Cantrell married one of the. Uh, she wasn't technically a princess. She was Anne Catherine was one of the uh, king's daughters. Was the title the Danes used. Um, the reason she's a king's daughter and not a princess, right? Is her yeah? She's the offspring of a morganatic marriage between King Christian the Fourth and a woman whose name I'm blanking out at the moment, but who is not a noble woman. So it was not. She's not in line of succession, but she is recognized as part of the royal family. She married Eddie Cantrell. Um, that <coughs> happens at the end of 1634, the Baltic War, which I wrote with David Weber. And then the book that Chuck and I wrote later, 1636, uh, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies, follows their further adventures once they've been married and they're off to the West Indies. Um, who else? Um, Gretchen Richter is a fictional character, so that doesn't count. Uh, Rui is a fictional character. Um, Frank Stone winds up marrying Giovanna Marcoli. She's a fictional character. Um, so there will be more marriages part. coming out of the uh, Caribbean arc, though. I, Morty's setting up. For oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. uh, there will be well, and also what I can't remember. At the end of um, uh, 1636, the Ottoman onslaught, which just came out uh, less than a year ago, um, Noel Stull, who's an American, marries Janos Drugas, and he is a Hungarian nobleman, and I don't remember, but I'm almost sure he's historical, because someone of that stature, because he's a high nobleman, I would have picked somebody historical. But probably nothing much is known about him, um, because typically I try to pick historical figures that, for one reason or another, like Prince Ulrich of Denmark in real history was murdered at the age of 23. So you can kind of do whatever you want with him, uh, since he didn't have much of a later life. And I just don't remember... I'm almost certain Dianos Grugas has to be a historical figure, but I don't remember. That was a while. That was a number of books ago. Um, so I can't remember exactly where I got him from. Hmm. But anyway, he yeah, is my, my, 
my trend in this regard, and I, I, I took it from the master, um, but he, he, didn't have, he didn't have to tell me, though. I, I read one or two of these books, and I realized that the downtimers who play usually the largest roles are those who, whose lives have been saved by the change of events, which means that their, their, their forward track is a blank slate, or they're just names in a history book off to the side. That's really good, because you can say they're historical, but there's pretty much nothing known about them, and the advantage of that is the un- it is extremely unlikely that somebody, someplace out there, later on in, a, in, in, the re- in the vast readership of this, is going to say, aha, you got this wrong. I mean, you yeah, know, there's, yeah, this, yeah. there's this hidden biography yeah. of such and so that, that invalidates everything you've said. So... Uh, to put it in a different, I'm going to I'm going to repurpose one of Eric's favorite sayings: "Vague is good," and in this case, yeah. a vague background for a character is really good. Yeah, yeah, it's or you pick somebody like Christina, the princess, who uh, she did live to a ripe old age, but she gets caught by the change at the age of seven. So you know the fact that she evolves personally in a very different ways. Nobody can prove you wrong about that. Another example I just thought of, they aren't married yet, but uh, Harry Lefferts is going to get married to Eva Catherine von Anhalt Dessau. Now, she is an historical figure, but about the only thing that's really known about her is she was one of many children of... Um, of, I've forgotten his name, but the, the ruler of the Principality of Anhalt-Dessau, and, and her older sister married Wilhelm Vetten, who was one of the Dukes of Saxe-Weimar, who's a very prominent character in the series. But really, she's just, it's like Chuck said, she's just a name. She never got married in real history, so she had no offspring. She's just a name that came down, and when we catch her in the... Uh, in the series, she's very young. She's in her early 20s. And even, uh, she's in a story I wrote called Scarface and, a, and, and Ring of Fire 4. It's a short novel. She's a major character in there. She's actually first introduced into the series by um, uh, Annette Peterson in her, um, in her novel, uh, The Wars for the Rhine, which came out about a year ago. Um, so, but she didn't do much of the. Uh, I'm the one who developed her as a character. But even the thing, which is the, the the source of the title, Scarface, that she has pox scars. Even that, we don't know for sure. It's just an extrapolation that that Annette made originally because she never got married in her life, even though she was quite. You know, it would have made a good marriage for any one of a number of noblemen, but, you know, so we're just assuming she had pox scars. She may not have. But that's the kind of thing Chuck's talking about. My favorite example of how this works is not actually doesn't involve a person. When Andrew Dennis and I wrote The Galileo Affair, it takes place most, almost all of it takes place in, in, in Venice, Italy. And just to make sure we didn't get caught by some damn person later on who knows something we don't, every single major location in that novel, except for the Piazza di San Marco, which it's easy to find out about, but every major location is some place in Venice that was later raised to build something else. So... One of them, the American embassy, later became, under Mussolini, the train station, and, you know, things like that. So you just sort of erase it. 
<laughs> so nobody can prove you wrong. Uh, it's tricky when you're writing historical stuff like this because you only have a few months to do the research that a scholar would spend a lifetime doing. And you simply can't research everything. And you try to get as accurate as you possibly can, but, but one way to do it is fudge by using historical figures or places that you can fudge over legitimately, just because, you know. Yeah. Um, for instance, much of the architecture of the 17th century, mostly it's gone because it was mostly raised for the later Baroque architecture or, or uh, 18th century architecture. So you can get away with a lot of stuff that way, too. Yeah. So <clears throat> sort of the overall arc of the Italian portion is is the fact that the Catholicism of the 1600s is having to come to terms with this modern nation that came in with all the with the, with the knowledge of the, what's going to happen in the future, right? Is that where we um, is that something that happens in in, in for instance papal stakes that uh, that we're dealing with? Well, the basic yeah, well, the basic yeah yeah. I mean that is the arc is that the it starts with Galileo and then the enormous impact on the Catholic Church of you know seeing what their future evolution would be, and then the question is, well, do we do that now or not? And there are different views on that. And, um, you know, and then, and, you know, these are adventure novels, so, I mean, all kinds of things then happen just because it's adventure. So at the end of of, um, of, of canon law, uh, Frank Stone and his wife, Giovanna, are, are captured by the Spanish cardinal and they're thrown in prison. So one of the main premises of papal stakes. By the way, I pronounce it papal. I don't know which way it's Me too. Correct. I do. I'm... I'm I will also evidence that same habit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at some point I should look it up find out what's the right way to pronounce that. I've never known my life. Anyway, um, so a lot of papal stakes is just taken up with the adventures of Harry Leopards and a bunch of other people trying to rescue Frank and Joanna. So, you know, I mean, we're not writing religious monographs here. But, um, but yes, Tony, to go back to your, basically what the four novels and what we've called the Italian arc, the central issue around which all of them revolve is what happens basically with Pope Urban VIII and the Catholic Church, but he's the Pope who's at the center of it. And so, you know, and he has been overthrown, but is still considered the legitimate Pope by many, many people in the Catholic Church. Um, and so we now have a, a split in the Catholic Church with two different competing. Borgia hasn't yet proclaimed himself a pope, but that's obviously the trajectory he's going on. So that's what those four novels cover. And that arc and that kind is, of comes oh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, with the Vatican sanction, that arc sort of comes to conclusion. The story's not over. It's gonna, but what's going to happen is it's going to broaden out and expand. Um uh, won't have quite such a tight focus as it's had up till now on the Catholic Church. And there are and there are definitely some events which uh, we will not be talking about because they would constitute spoilers. That, assuming your readers haven't already read the book by the time they get this, would uh, be very unforgiving. <laughs> Let's definitely assume that. <laughs> so, yeah. 
But so in the in uh, the papal stakes, we come up to the point where Urban is um, he's called a sort of conclave in this uh, French town uh, of Bensonchon. Uh, is that right? How do we get there, and, and who's coming? That's Vatican sanction. Oh, I see. Um, is this the is this the point where you would like me to talk about papal stakes and how that brings us into? Yeah, yeah. So how? Where, okay. How come there's all these um, mercenaries protecting the 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 exiled pope in this little town, and what the hell's going on at the beginning of the book? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, so in papal stakes, you have it's a it's a novel with a lot of cross cutting, um, and I suppose I'm I'm uh, I'm showing my cinematic roots there a little bit, where you have um, you have a you have two different sort of um, adventure threads going on, one which is the escape and the protection of the Pope to a very small, you couldn't even call it a, a town. It is, it is like a hypertrophied villa in, a, in a, a factual place called Molino in, in a fairly remote area of the Little Dolomites. This is Hemingway country from, uh, for, uh, from uh, Farewell to Arms. It's exactly... It's the, the the events of that novel are literally less than 20 miles away from this locale, so pretty remote, pretty much um, you know well up in the in the in Alpine Valley, or a pre-Alpine Valley, I should say, and that's where they're that's where the Pope moves, that's where they they try to to store him to protect him, um, because when the novel starts, papal stakes, he's still on the run. They're, they've just they've just crossed over into Lombardy, which is. Uh, essentially Venetian, which is essentially friendly terrain, but that doesn't mean they're safe yet. Um, at the same time, as, as Eric mentioned, we have um, uh, Frank and Gia, uh, Giovanna, uh, who are, uh, they start in Rome, but um, there's a, it's one of the things that I bring about in Papal Stakes is uh, I put a character on the board by the name of Pedro Dolor, who is um, is in some ways, you might say, one of the first Locals, one of the first downtimers, i.e., people from this world, not not uptimers, the Americans who have have come from up the time stream um, to arrive here. Uh, Dolor is one of the first who really gives the uptimers and their their allies some pretty bloody noses uh, and and beats them on one or two occasions at their own game. Um, he realizes that uh, they're, they they actually uses. Frank and Giovanna's presence in Rome to to bait in a uh, a rescue attempt uh, led by Harry Lefferts, where Harry Lefferts, who up to this point has essentially led a kind of golden charmed existence as the as the premier uh, sort of uh, commando, if you will, organizer and operative at this point, and he he falls into a uh, a pretty meticulously laid trap. And that involves Harry a lot, and um, there, I think there's some, there's some. It's a, it's a pretty, it's, it's one of the moments in the series where quote the good guys and gals are just getting the crap kicked out of them, um, and several die. Several, uh, several members of uh, very, very important characters in the Wrecking Crew, and also a very important historical character at this time, um, the uh, 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 John O'Neill. Uh, John O'Neill at this point is the era, he is the uh, next in line for the what would be the the title of the the king of of Ireland were that ever to come back. His elimination changes the politics in Ireland 
and particularly of the wild geese, who are a major military component in the Netherlands, uh, the lowlands, um, under Isabella, changes them dramatically uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that he was a kind of intemperate fellow and pretty much wedded at the hip to the sort of uh, counter-reformationist attitudes he imbibed as a young man. Um, the person who, who is sort of a, then fills in behind him as the next line for that position is a much different character, both, both historical characters, again. Um, so while you've got that whole thing going on, and then eventually they will have to, they move Frank and Gia to, um, uh, again, a historic place, uh, the, uh, the Castel de Balver on, uh, on Palma de Mallorca, and there it looks like an impossible rescue task, but uh, we have kind of a, uh, we have kind of a where eagles dare mounted by, by blimp punk uh, there, which, uh, which is one half of the cross-cutting. And the other half is the assassination, the slow, coiling approach of the serpent to Molino, to the, essentially the concluding um, uh, attempt, on the, uh, attempt on the Pope's life, Urban Eight's life, which is a very near thing indeed. Um, and again, kills known and loved characters in the series. I'm a I'm a very bloody-handed collaborator, <laughs> uh, as I think Eric will uh, will, will attest. <laughs> but uh, but I you know I work good with all that lubrication, all that red lubrication. Um, at any rate, uh, there is this, but this all this all says yeah. So you've got this sort of cinematic setup, two very important dramatic arcs. But inside the Molino, protect the Pope arc. There is another. There's a sort of sub, a sub cross cut arc, which is the debate between the the more conservative elements of the church, represented by a historical figure by the name of Luke Wadding, who is a Franciscan and um, who is a major protector and and cataloger of books historically, and had been educated by the Spanish at Salamanca, it, compared with Larry Mazzari. Now the cardinal protector of Rome, uh, excuse me, of um, of uh, Grantville or the USC in general, is it or is it Thuringia Franconia? I think it's Thuringia Franconia. Um, but the so you've got this, um, you've got this essentially, and I keep it, I keep the chapters really short <laughs> because it is a contest between um, there are a whole bunch of things which were not resolved in the in the in the first two novels, which to me were a huge gift. Which were so uh, the arrival of Granville. How would people from the 17th century perceive this natural phenomenon? Natural phenomenon at that time were still essentially considered the province of of, of deity. We hadn't we hadn't gotten to that that uh, that that um, uh, Nietzschean moment of God is dead, literally or figuratively speaking, and and so you have people saying, well, is this the work of the devil? And is it? And are the? And then there are the subcategories of: Are the Grantville? Are the people of Grantville actually demons? Are they knowing uh, uh, subordinates of the devil, but human? Or are they dupes? Or is it a natural? Is it a natural event? And from that, that's one set of debates which takes place. And then the other, which I think is the one you were really you were really uh, tugging at this particular string earlier, Tony, is what do we do with? The, the Roman Catholic Church. If we believe these things are historical, and this is why there's so much at stake over whether this is a trick or not, because if it's not a trick, that means that these documents from the future are genuine. If they are genuine, that means that they have the acts of almost four centuries of popes that they can look at and study. And remember, a pope 
is supposedly infallible in matters and faith of in matters of faith and morals, leaving Urban with a hell of a dilemma: is a pope that has yet to be born, but actually existed someplace, and therefore is also responsive to and is supposed to be in communication with the Holy Trinity, is are how much, to what degree, or at all, is the is the Church of the 1630s supposed to take these directives, these these the, what was canon then, into account? So that's one of the things that gets uh, set up. And the the all I can say is this: the 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 the, the fastest summation is at the end of papal stakes, um, everything, all all of this hash at least is settled enough so that we can go forward. In the case of the Church, it has been determined that as far as Urban and the folks with him are concerned, this is a natural phenomenon. This is not the work of the devil, and that really changes the way... It, it, it answers questions in a lot of people, the people we don't see on stage, of how to react to things from Grantville. The people, its, its works, its knowledge. You know, if there was... Anybody who's following Urban has has now a sort of um, has an official line on that that they can follow, and then we have recovered Frank and Giovanna, which is really good because she's pretty pronouncedly pregnant by the end of the novel, um, and uh, and we also have a um, a resolution to what is going to happen now with with uh, Urban and and the papacy. Uh, what is he going to do? And that is what brings us into uh, into. Uh, Vatican sanction because at the end of papal stakes, we know he's been uh, he's been invited to come do this to to hold another consistory which is uh, which would be an official uh, gathering of the cardinals to to essentially uh, articulate the church's official position on what has happened in Rome and elsewhere. Um, but he's not going to do it. He 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 uh, he rejects the um, the with gratitude, but rejects the offer to do this in the U.S. Uh, USC because, as he says, um, and as other people pointed out, uh, I'm going to be suspect if, as a Roman Catholic, a pope, I am having to shelter under Gustav Adolphus, one of the most redoubtable warriors of the Reformation. Uh, I'm going to be suspect. I can't do it there. So that brings them to, to look for a town that is going to be primarily Catholic, essentially independent, but also has a history or a reason for being fairly, um, fairly flexible about, about issues of, of working across the different sects of, the, of, of Christianity. And one of the reasons that Bessensant is chosen, in addition to having that background, Bessensant, which is where um, Bernard is uh, the, the, the new Duke of Burgundy there, uh, of course, his, he's married to uh, Claudia de' Medici. So you have a Lutheran, because that's, I believe, what uh, what uh, Bernard is, married to a uh, a Catholic. So there's it's this it's this little it's a newly formed state. It does not have um, a, a well articulated policy on religion, but it doesn't have to because there's got to be toleration for that royal couple to continue going forward. Um, and it's it's geographically in the right place. And actually, that's also at this time was a very it was a not at all a small town. Um, it wasn't one of the great cities of Europe, but it was a uh, it was a major it was a major piece on the map, and uh, and not at all uh, not at all inconsiderable in terms of its size or its economic and political significance. 
Well, at the beginning of the book, one of the things it possesses is a uh, is a Zeppelin port, because a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, church figures and cardinals are are coming in via um, airship, right? We've gotten to the point where the technology has begun to develop um, and, and spread out from uh, Grantville. It, it most certainly has, and um, this is uh, what what you're seeing is, you know, as, as you know, how it's okay. So uh, a couple of things: Besançon isn't even one of the major hubs. It has, as you say, it's kind of an it has a, a convenient field that's set aside for it. But one of the things that's going on, of course, is you're getting people moving back and forth between the major aerodrome sort of hub. Now you add to that the fact that these things are going all over the place on different missions. Uh, one of the reasons they're being freed up is because there's a next generation of airship being readied off stage, which is these are all hot airships. The ones that are being readied are going to be hydrogen. Hydrogen is going to be, a, a, I, know, I know it sounds strange to talk about there, there being leaps forward with zeppelins or blimps, but in fact, a hydrogen blimp really is a leap forward. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons that these hot air balloons are out there, because, or, or blimps, because they're no longer, if you will, the cutting edge. They, already, they are already about, they're getting weeded out to secondary rather than primary strategic tasks. And, um, and it is fun writing that, and it's fun writing about the, the presence of the radio, which is very important in this, in this novel, uh, when people get to the end. Um, if one, you know, you may have heard that, that for instance, uh, there, there's all sorts of notions. How would you, for instance, destabilize Iran? Uh, uh, whether, whether that's a good idea or not, one of, one of the most interesting suggestions is just airdrop in about a million cell phones. Um, you know, because, and, and if you can, and then repeaters, because, and radios are uh, to some degree playing the same role in the, in the, in the earth of the ring of fire, because it is very hard to, um, every place has an, has potentially an ear to the outside world. And at the end of this particular story, Vatican sanction, um, a whole new set of networks is being established. And once again, so as not to provide any spoilers, I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. Well, one of the things that that, that does come in is cryptography, radio cryptography, which is uh, has an important place in the book, and that's kind of cool because that's determined. Um, you know, it, it was a huge thing in World War World War Two, um, and seeing it um, seeing it 300 years earlier is is pretty. Um, it's pretty interesting the way that you've used it. Well, um, you want to jump in there, Eric? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So, um, well, let's just for a minute. Let's talk about the sanction, um, which is um, there. There are plots to assassinate Urban um, um, yep. that are in play, more than one. Um, and there are people that are aware of some and that are maybe not aware of others or, or at least suspect. Um, tell us first about um, maybe the Pope's plan, and then maybe we can talk about the Maleficent uh, Pedro Dolor. Right, who, who, um, who once again, I can't speak about too much, again, for, for spoiler purposes. But in the very first, for those folks who are wondering... Um, 
should you buy this book right away or wait till it comes out in paperback or that sort of thing. Here's something I can tell you, which is Pedro Dolor is not what he seems. He doesn't come from where you think he comes from. And you will learn about that and why he's kept a secret identity and what he intends to do, at least in broad strokes, within the first three pages of the book. And it won't spoil the book for you. But it will, but as people have, have people who've read it in EARC and things like that have come back to me, and, and one, one, one person said, <laughs> their Facebook post to me was, I just read the prologue. And then the next three sentences were single words each. Blue period, my period, mind period. So I'm 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 here I'm here stumping for the book that if you if you want to uh, if you want to uncover um, what didn't look like a secret but was in fact and has been all the way since papal stakes, this could be your moment to do so. Um, he has a much deeper plan. Uh, you're you're absolutely uh, Tony. We'll we'll go with the with the order you started. Certainly, it is no surprise to anybody that Borgia wants to do um, Urban Inn. I mean, he already tried twice, so you know, three times the charm, right? Um, he fa- he failed at um, at the Tomb of Hadrian's, the uh, Castel de, la- de Angelo in Rome, which, of course, as as Eric Eric gets pretty bloody hands too. I think actually, I think Eric likes gunpowder on his hands more than blood uh, because he blew up the whole damn castle. Um, in uh, <laughs> towards the end of catalog. Actually, actually, um, actually, that that was Andrew Dennis's doing. Uh, oh, he wrote sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I what yeah, I can it. claim, what I can claim, guilt for is is uh, my wife and I, Lucille and I, oh, some years ago went to Thuringia to visit. We wound up touring the. Uh, um, you're going to talk about the Wartburg, uh, aren't you? The Wartburg, which is considered by yeah. Germans the quintessential German castle. Uh, it's really something to go there. <laughs> about halfway through the tour, Lucille turned to me and said, I can't believe you blew this place up, you barbarian. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I've also burned down the Globe Theater. And uh, blew up the Tower of London. So I mean, one of these days, I'm afraid European governments are going to ban me from <laughs> Europe. Taking out all the landmarks. Actually, I, don't I, think tend the to have I think the reason. I think the reason the series hasn't really gone to China yet is because because we all know Eric's going to destroy the Great Wall. So, no, so no, we, I'm not going to do that. We can't go there. No, really? Well, that would be a lot of work. Now that, you know, the, 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 I, I know. <laughs> that's why this was a joke, Eric. I mean, <laughs> the Imperial Palace, on the other hand. I'm not sure what okay. state it's Forbidden City. I'm not sure what state it's at right now. But uh, By the way, the first novel in the... Um, China arc is completed now. It hasn't been scheduled publication, but Ira Cooper and I wrote it. Um, and <laughs> I'm blanking on the title. It was originally Mandate of Heaven, but uh, uh, Tony Weisskopf, publisher, not Tony Daniel, didn't like that sound. So it's too generic. And, and she's right, so we changed the title, but I'm trying to remember yeah. what we changed it to. Sorry, Maybe it'll come. She doesn't like uh, she doesn't like um, religious words and titles. She says it, it cuts down on sales with our audience. Who 
Tony is Tony does not like religious words in titles. She has um, for a long time told me that she thinks that. I mean, not not because she's against them, but because she thinks it it depresses sales for some reason. Oh really? Uh, well, yeah. We, so anyway, that's probably. Any event, uh, uh, we changed. I, I'm just. Uh, I'm not in my office at the moment, uh, so I could go and look. I forgot. I want to change the title to. Uh, it's something. Oh, the China Venture. That's what it is. Um, anyway, I. Don't know when that'll come out. Uh, won't be next year because I've got uh, four slots already filled up for next year, but um, probably in 2019. Anyway, that will be the first, well, hopefully first book in, in uh-huh. Adventures in China. But um, I don't know. That's a sideline. Um, anyway, um, so it is true I have blown up. And destroy quite a bit of European architecture. That's true. Um, I tend not to have. It depends how you calculate body count because there is. You can have a very high body count of basically faceless people killed in battles, which I've done in any number of books. But I tend not to have a very high body count of main characters. A few, but not too many. Um, but don't worry, I'm picking up the slack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I know. Um, um, uh, yeah, yeah, Chuck does be a little more bloody minded than I am that way. Um, That was part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon discussing 1636, the Vatican Sanction. Part two of the interview will be available next time on the podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Tolly opened his eyes to the cranium's control room. 
A snug little corner it was, with everything he needed within reach of his thought. The control room simulation was very good. He felt the command chair's firm support, tasted canned air, blinked in protest of too bright lighting, felt the knob work under the pressure of his fingers as he dialed it down to the level he preferred. All is well, mentor? Inky's voice murmured in his ear. Their channel was closed, shielded, and entirely separate from the rest of the control room. Looking fine, he said. See anything on your side to make you nervous? All gauges steady green, she responded. Just like they ought to be, he said. All right then, let's get started. Out, Inky murmured, and he heard the line close. Inky was in Terrigan's study room, sitting second. Technically, Tolly was also in the study room, but as lead mentor on the transfer, he was jacked into the cranium's control room. First line of scrutiny and defense, he was. A tri-D set worn over both eyes and one ear, haptic key set to hand, and all the info flow running through his own super-personal metaphoric visualization scanner. Inky's role was backup. She would see everything he did on her board. Her job was to catch anything that got past him. Also, she was his safety line in case anything went wrong with the interface or he got trapped inside the cranium which had happened once or twice or a half dozen times during the bad old days, but nothing recently thanks to various improvements in the cranium systems. In the control room, Tolly spun the chair, fingers moving over the board, setting parameters, flow rate, and filters. The admiral, having been so long living in substandard quarters, he keyed in the tightest filters available and set the flow to a modest 3.5. He didn't want anything that might have been left in those computers before the Admiral took up residence, coming with him into clean quarters. Parameters set, he paused, then sighed very lightly and tapped a smooth section of the board. An array of three red buttons rose and snapped into place. The buttons gave off a sullen light of their own, and Tolly sighed again. Darts. Just in case. He had never had to destroy an intelligence in mid-transfer. He'd seen it done, once, and about as bad a death as anyone could wish for, even when the darts were thrown by the hand of a master, which, in the case he had witnessed, they had been. A tone sounded, sharp in the still air of the control room. Pipe in place, Tokel's voice filled the tiny space. Pipe stable, initiate transfer at will. The transfer was going better than he had dared to hope. The pale green flow of the Admiral's essence moving, swift and remarkably clear, down the pipe. He had expected fragmentation, but there was very little of that. 
Some frayed linkages did pass under his scrutiny, and a few broken lines, but nothing that the admiral himself couldn't repair. Once he was awake in a stable environment. So far, Tolly had stopped the flow twice in order to clear the file filters of tattered bits of unrelated programs. Shred, they were, unexpunged memory traces washed out of the computers that had so inadequately housed him by the flood of the Admiral's departure. He examined them before rejecting them entirely. Part of a menu, fuel tallies, a log of mining sites and metals recovered, usage stats, a rather extensive collection of pornography. Inky, he murmured, you see anything to worry about? All green, mentor. May I say that I had not expected it to go this well? Only saying what we're all thinking. After he's in, I'll set the blocks, back out, and we'll get some rest before we go to the next stage. I want him installed before we give the wake-up call. Agreed, Inky said, and suddenly sharp. Mentor, an anomaly. He saw it bearing down on the filters, a dark, spinning mass of broken programs up from a bad memory segment churning like a chaotic junkyard slicked with oil and bristling with rust flowing through a broken ice jam. Something that big would take out the filters and keep on going, contaminating not only the Admiral, but the cranium environment as well. Even as his fingers moved, he saw the pipe contract, slowing the flow of data and the advance of the broken mass. Tokel had noticed the problem and was doing what she could. Good. He had already fingered a dart into place, took aim, and threw. The screen went momentarily black as debris erupted upward, his metaphor recalibrating. Tolly slapped up a secondary screen, but even as he did so, the primary cleared. In his ear, Inky cheered. Black shred was visible within the flow of the Admiral's essence, small enough for the filters to deal with. He took a deep breath and sagged back in the chair, then snapped forward again. The filters might be able to catch the junk now, but there was so much that he was going to have to stop and clean. What happened there? He murmured into his connection to Tokol. The backup comp on the packet boat failed. I widened the pipe in order not to lose any part of the Admiral. I had not anticipated that so much original ship data had been left behind. Right, how's it looking upstream? I see the transfer's end statements on the date mismatch rejection routines and on the macro collection routines. Final files coming soon. There is some debris, but nothing else that threatens the filters. He shook his head within the visualizer, the major pipes still turgid with old data and images. Some of the old modular code had enough match points that it might be mistaken for undercode for the Admiral. I'm going to have to stop and clean. Will that be a problem? There was a pause then. If you must, mentor, but quickly.
quickly from the likes of Tokol Lorlin. That got a man's attention, so it did. Right then, he said. It was a mess, and he cleared as quickly as he was able, trying not to wonder, was it quick enough? Then stopped and cleared one more time with the glow of the final end statement, filling his screen. We got him, he murmured, fingers moving among the keys, checking and double-checking the stats. As far as the instruments knew, they had downloaded every pertinent program and subroutine available and assembled them in the correct order, ready. Whether Admiral Bunter had survived, that was a real question. Starved as he'd been, closing in on unstable, Tolly took a breath. Tomorrow's worry, he told himself. Mind on today, mentor Tolly. He set aside his anxiety, his need to know that the Admiral had survived, that they hadn't just downloaded a very powerful administration program, void of personality or drive. He was tired and inky too. Hours had elapsed in the transfer, they having elected to do the thing right, unlike some fool star captains he could name. Him and Inky, they needed food and rest before they undertook anything so chancy as waking an untutored and slightly grouchy AI to himself. Pipe closed, Tokel reported. Shall I scrub, Bentor? Ordinarily, he would have told her to hold the scrub, but if the old comps were failing already, scrub, he said. Then, toggling his line to Inky, setting blocks. That was routine and went quickly enough, even with putting in a secondary sequence in the interests of being very certain that the Admiral would not wake by himself. Coming out, he said then and pulled the glasses off his face, opening his eyes to the study room and inky sitting, slump-shouldered and grinning, across from him. Dov didn't bother trying to gain his treacherous feet. He merely got himself oriented there on the floor and rolled to her side. Her pulse was thready and fast, her breathing shallow. Help! he shouted in Terran, Liaden, and Trade, that being a word well known to robot observation protocols, but he needn't have bothered. The door snapped open before the third had fairly left his mouth, and the uncle strode into the room. What ails her? he demanded, falling to his knees and also checking pulse and lungs. Dov shook his head. Her pod was ripe, she ate it. Perhaps the uncle swore. The words were unfamiliar. The tone was consistent with strong emotion. What is it doing? The tree? I don't know, Dov said. What ought I to do then? A dock in monitor mode, he said promptly. It will do no harm, and it may tell us what goes forth. The uncle gave a sharp nod, slipped his arms under the small body, and rose. Dov rose as well, fighting a life mate's outrage. His right and his duty to carry. 
In your current state, you cannot, the uncle said, as if he had felt the burn of Dov's rage. Did that fall just now teach you nothing? There was no answer to make to that, and the uncle was already on his way down the hall. Dov followed. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jaikowitz. And the ribbon of Marxist fairy gold that stretches through history funds magical industrial policy and causes things to glow at weird moments when you don't expect it, plus grants lend leases and fiefs of praise. For Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, co-authors of 1636 The Vatican Sanction, Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>